Welcome to part three of our series, Maximum Faith. You know, at some point, beliefs about God are expressed in the open as actions for God. Call it what you want, the proof in the pudding, the rubber hitting the road, or for our purposes, where faith actually begins. Now, words about God are not the same as actions which express true trust in God. We know the difference, but more importantly, God knows the difference and is waiting to see it and move in response. It happens when there is no obvious reason to believe, but we believe and act anyway because we know God's capacity and character. Either God's real or he is not. Either he can or he cannot. Either he said he would or he did not. This is the rare black and white thinking of Abraham's faith in the midst of impossible circumstances. He didn't waver and neither did God. Now before we join our special guest speaker, Pastor J.P. Jones from Crossline Church, take a moment and share this message. Now, let's get started with part three of Maximum Faith. All right, good morning, men. Good morning. For those of you who aren't familiar with me here uh, this morning and those watching online, I'm Pastor J.P. Jones. I have the privilege of being the founding senior pastor here at Crossline Church and actually uh, pioneering starting this call study 15 years ago. So it's awesome to be with you this morning. Uh, you get the junior varsity. Pastor uh, Kenny is on a well-deserved vacation with his wife. Hebrews chapter 13 says marriage is holy. The marriage bed is undefiled. So let's pray that Pastor Kenny and his wife have awesome sex on their <laughs> vacation. We are, uh, we are in installment number three in this series on maximum faith. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open to Romans chapter 4. We're going to be talking about maximum faith, looking at the example of Abraham. He is the guy mentioned in the Bible more than anyone else as an example of faith, uh, especially in the New Testament books of Romans, Hebrews, Galatians, and James. Abraham is presented to us as a man who lived by faith. Now what's great about this is when you study the life of Abraham, which you can do in Genesis uh, 12 through 22, you can see that he was a real guy. He had ups and downs, he had struggles, he had temptations, he had failures, he had victories, but through it all, he lived by faith, and God blessed him because he lived by faith, and God uses him as an example throughout the Bible as a man of faith. Now, in Romans chapter 4, what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's using the life faith of Abraham to be an example for the salvation faith every person needs to act upon in order to come into a relationship with God. So I want you to understand what's happening in Romans 4 so that then we can take that to apply it to our own life. So Romans 4, he's saying, here's this guy Abraham who, who lived the life of faith and there's a, a principle by which he lived his life and that same principle by which he lived his life is what you're to act upon when you step into a relationship with God. Now, what God is wanting every man today to do is to take that act of faith that was a part of our salvation experience and then apply that on a daily basis, living by faith. So write this down in, in your notes. Write this down. It'll help you understand Romans 4 and where we're going in learning to be a man of faith. Faith is accepting that God is who he says he is. Faith is accepting that God is who he says he is and believing that he will do what he promises to do. Faith is accepting that God is who he says he is and believing that he will do what he promises to do. 
faith acts upon what it accepts and believes. Faith acts upon what it accepts and believes even when it doesn't see the manifestation of it. Even when it doesn't see the manifestation of it. So faith is accepting that God is who he says he is and believing that God is going to do what he promises to do. And faith acts upon what it accepts and believes even when it doesn't see the manifestation of it. So this biblical teaching about faith runs right in the face with what many of us think about faith. So if someone just accepts that God is who he says he is, yeah, I believe there's a God. There's a God who created everything. Sure, I believe that. That's not biblical faith. Just making that acceptance. If someone says, I accept that God is who he says he is, and I believe that God is gonna pro- God's going to do what he promises to do, but then there's no personal responsible obedience to that truth, that's not biblical faith. If someone says, I accept that God is who he says he is, and I believe he's going to do what he promises to do, and then they actually step out and act upon that, but if they don't see the realization of it, and they just get discouraged and say, well, I guess that didn't work, and then they go back to living the way they were living before, that's not faith. Faith, faith, according to the Bible, is accepting that God is who he says he is, that he's going to do what he promises to do, And then in a faith action, stepping out in obedience, even when you don't see the manifestation of it. And you will see time after time after time in the Bible, men and women who did that, and then because they acted in faith, God blessed and rewarded their faith. It says in Hebrews 11.6, it is impossible to please God without faith. For the person who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that seek him. Now, Abraham is an example of that because Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, received a promise from God. He received a promise that included a land, a people, and a blessing. God said, I'm going to give you this land, and Abraham hadn't seen it. God says, I'm going to, from your body, bring descendants that are going to be like the numbers of the the grain of sand on the seashore, the number of stars in heaven. And he says, from you... All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So Abraham receives a promise that included a land, a seed, an inheritance, a people, and a blessing. And Abraham stepped out in faith and acted upon it even when he didn't see the reality of it. And then because he had the promise and because he stepped out in obedient action, the reality of the promise was fulfilled on the basis of faith. And so what God says in Romans chapter 4 is that's the same spiritual formula, to use that term, that happens when any person crosses the line into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You receive a promise from God that he has a salvation plan through Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again from the dead. And if you'll put your faith in Christ and act upon that and become a follower of Jesus Christ, God will forgive your sins and give you the gift of eternal life. And so when you take that promise and you respond to it with an act of obedience in faith, God seals the promise and you receive salvation. That's what Romans 4 is all about. But what God wants to do in the life of every man is take that same Romans 4 kind of faith and say, now take that faith, which you're kind of all familiar with because you've crossed the line, you have come into a salvation relationship with Jesus Christ. Now apply that and live by faith 
in your marriage. Live by faith in your parenting. Live by faith in the way you deal with temptation. Live by faith in the way you steward your money. Live by faith by the way you serve God in kingdom service. Live by faith in the way you store up your treasure in heaven. Live by faith in the way you process your thought life. Live by faith in the way you deal with your habits. Live by faith in the way you conduct every part of your life. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. For the man who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that seek him. So faith is accepting that God is who he says he is. It's believing that God's going to do what he promises to do. It's then acting upon that even when you don't see the manifestation of it. We're going to see how Abraham did that in Romans chapter 4, Romans 4, 18 to 25. Now, as you're kind of maybe processing that in the scriptures, uh, let me tell you a little story. It'll be familiar to some of you because it illustrates what Abraham is all about. It's a story that I tell a lot here at Crossline Church. It's the story of the great Blondin. The great Blondin was a tightrope walker. It's a true story. You can go on Google, research this guy. He's probably the greatest tightrope walker who ever lived. He, he traveled the world in the 19th century. He would set up his tightrope and he would, uh, he would perform these extraordinary events on the tightrope. One time the great Blondin had a, a backpack on and in the backpack was a stove and, and some cooking utensils and some, some ingredients to make an omelet. He walked across on the tightrope, and in the middle of the tightrope, he took off the backpack, put up the stove, took out the frying pan, scrambled the eggs, made an omelet, ate it, put it all back in the backpack, and then continued walking across. He did it all while he was balancing on a tightrope. One time the great Blondin came to America. He set up his tightrope at Niagara Falls. He had a big advance campaign. He was quite a showman. And everybody came out to see the great Blondin. And so the great Blondin looked at the crowd and said, how many of you think I can walk across on a tightrope Niagara Falls? Well, you know, they, it, they looked at Niagara Falls. They looked at the tightrope and nobody expected the Blondin to make, great Blondin to make it. They thought the great Blondin was going to whoop into the falls. So he makes a big show of it with his balancing pole and acts like he's falling. He goes to the other side and then he comes back and everybody cheers. And then he says, how many of you think I could push a wheelbarrow across and come back? About half the crowd raised their hand. The great blonde takes a wheelbarrow and he does the same thing. He makes a big show of it. He goes over and then he comes back and everybody cheers. And then he says, how many of you think if somebody was in the wheelbarrow, I could push him across? Now everybody raises their hand. Of course, you're the great blonde and you could do it. And then he said, okay, I'd like a volunteer. And everybody put their hand down. <laughs> Finally, a brave soul volunteered. And sure enough, he pushed him across and brought him back. Now here's, here's the spiritual application. Many of us, we think of faith like responding to the great blondin's question, how many of you think I could push somebody across in the wheelbarrow, and we think, yeah, I think the great Blondin could do that. And so we raise our hand. We think faith is, yeah, I think God exists. Yeah, I think God's made promises. Yeah, I think God could do whatever God wanted to do. But it doesn't really impact the way we live our lives. It's all intellectual. It's just intellectual assent. That's not faith. Biblical faith is getting in the wheelbarrow. Biblical faith is getting in the wheelbarrow. And you get in the wheelbarrow in response to the promises of God. It starts with a promise from God. You respond to that promise by getting in the wheelbarrow. You act upon it in obedient faith. And then that completes the faith. And then God blesses and fulfills the promise. 
This is demonstrated in Abraham. Look at Romans chapter 4, verses 18 and 25. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. And since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but for also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So this is what I want to do. I want to first just look at this passage kind of verse by verse and understand what's going on and then draw out some principles for God's men today to be men of faith. Because we're talking about maximum faith. So verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. And just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham had this hope because God made a promise to him. And this phrase, hope against hope, it was like there's an objective and a subjective hope. Objective hope is when God says he's going to do something and, and it's your expectation because God said he's going to do it. It's your hope. Subjective hope is hoping in your hope. Abraham was hoping in his hope because God had made a promise. And the promise was you're going to have offspring and your offspring are going to be like the, the sands on the seashore. They're going to be like the stars in the sky. From you, Abraham, are going to become a people. And from you, are, there's going to be a blessing to all the nations. And so Abraham put his hope in the hope that came from the promise of God. 19 to 21 says, Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he'd promised. See, Abraham was old. He was old when he received the promise, and he got even older as the promise was yet to be manifested. And in the course of time in Genesis 11 to 22, God repeated the promise to him. God kept repeating this promise to him. And Abraham, in thinking about the promise, it says he, he didn't disregard the fact that he and Sarah were advanced in years. There's a certain, you know, uh, delicacy of the scriptures. But basically what it's saying is the, the sexual part of their marriage no longer existed. Because they were old. And this was before, you know, they had little blue pills. And Abraham said, my body's as good as dead. God's saying I'm going to have children. And Abraham is old. I mean, and then Sarah, my wife, is old. He, di he didn't disregard the physical reality what he did was believe that what God said was truer than what he could see. 
His faith was not based upon what he could see or what he could understand or what he could rationalize or even what he could put together. His faith was in what God had promised. So as his faith was rooted in who God was and what God promised, even in light of his physical limitation for that promise to be uh, realized, his faith actually increased. See, our faith increases when we take it off of ourselves and we put it on God. Our faith increases when we think about who God is, not about who we are. Our faith grows as we, as we root it in, in an object. Faith has to have an object. An unreliable object will always lead to an unreliable faith. So you could actually, on a subjective level, have a lot of faith. But if it's in the wrong object, it's not biblical faith, and it will not produce a biblical result. We, we could be standing on top of a, of a, of a, a multi-storied building and in front of me was a very stable steel bridge fully encased going to the other side to another building and in front of you was a very thin balsa structure, balsa wood structure. And, and I stood there and said, I, I, I'm scared to death. I, I have very weak faith as to whether this steel bridge will support me if I walk across. And, and you say, I have 100% faith. In fact, I don't have, even have any doubts. I know I can walk across on this balsa wood structure and get to the other side. And we both take our first step. Your great faith leads you to, flat, a sudden stop at the end. My very weak faith helps me get all the way across. Well, what was the difference? The object. The object of our faith. I had a reliable object. The, the strength and outcome of faith in the Bible is not so much on the degree to which the person who's exercising faith has faith. It's the object to which faith is put in. That's why Jesus said to the man who brought his son to him, who had all these convulsive seizures, he said, do you believe? He said, I believe, help me in my unbelief. That was an acknowledgement of a very weak faith. Yeah, I believe, but I also don't believe sometimes. And you know what Jesus did? He healed the guy. It wasn't based on this guy having 100% confidence that Jesus could do it. It was that he put whatever little faith he had in Jesus. God makes a promise to Abraham, and Abraham trusted in his promises. The whole point of this passage is the promise of God. What you see in Romans 4, if you were to read all of Romans 4, you'll see this relationship between promise, grace, faith, and hope. They all go together. Promise, grace, faith, and hope. So God's man honestly has to look at the reality of their physical situation, whatever that reality is. Maybe it's in your marriage, or maybe it's in your spiritual life, or maybe it's in your finances, or maybe it's in your, your health. You, you honestly look at it, but you look to a higher reality and a higher source of truth. That's what God says is true. The promise of God supersedes anything else. God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham put his faith in the promise. And so verse 22 says, and this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. I told you in Genesis 12 to 22, you see the story of Abraham, and God repeatedly makes the same promise to Abraham over and over and over again. In Genesis chapter 15, it says, God makes the promise again, and then it says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
One of the things that's interesting for me as, as a pastor is to be able to observe people who come to church and, and hear the message week after week after week. And the message, you know, here, at least here at our church, it doesn't deviate. We believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that's presented over and over again. And people are given opportunities to cross the line and, and give their lives to Jesus and exercise their faith in Jesus. And it's always, it's, it's just awesome to see sometimes people who will come once, twice, three times, four times, five times, and then for some reason, they'll come on a Sunday, hear the message, and put their faith in Christ and cross the line. Like, they were hearing it before, but there was no faith response to it. And then, for whatever reason, they heard the same message, and on that particular occasion, there was a faith response. And that's what happened with Abraham. God was giving him a promise, and at some point, Abraham actually believed the promise. And when he believed the promise, it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's the paradigm of faith that Romans 4 is talking about. It's, it's that God makes a promise. We respond to it. We, we accept that God is who he says he is. We believe that he's going to do what he promises to do. We then take a faith action and act upon that promise, and that's when our faith is complete, and God credits to us his righteousness. That's the, that's the gospel of salvation. What God wants us to do, as God's men, is take that same paradigm and apply it to every part of our life. Receive a promise from God, believe that he is who he says he is, that he's going to do what he promises to do, act upon that promise, and then see him bring the reality of that promise into existence into our lives. That's living by faith. That's maximum faith. That's living a righteous life because the Bible says the righteous will live by faith. Verses 23 to 25. But also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. God credits righteousness to us today just like he did to Abraham thousands of years ago on the basis of faith. It's on the basis of faith that God imparts righteousness, that God credits righteousness, that God imputes righteousness, that God declares righteousness all on the basis of faith. So, to, to believe like Abraham, going back to my illustration of the great Blondin, is getting in the wheelbarrow. To believe like Abraham. What is believing like Abraham? It's accepting that God is who he says he is. It's believing that he's going to do what he promises to do. And then it's acting upon what it is that you accept and you believe. That's real faith. That's real faith. And Jesus, you see, he's the ultimate object of our faith. That's what Paul's saying here in, in Romans 4, 23 and 25. All the promises of God come back to Jesus Christ. All the promises of God come back to Jesus. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous. And so when we're living our lives as followers of Christ... We put our faith in the promises of God as they are revealed and affirmed and declared in the person of Jesus Christ, and then we're really living by faith. That's why we could say, 
Christianity is a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In the midst of the confusion and the muck of your life, in the midst of duking it out with your wife, in the midst of figuring out how to be a parent, in the midst of trying to figure out what you're going to do with your finances, in the midst of getting a bad report from the doctor, what you cling to is Jesus. And any promise that he makes to your life. And when you cling to Jesus and any promise that he makes to your life, and then you act upon it, that's when God says, you're a righteous man. You're my man. You're living by faith. And that's when God delivers on what it is that he promises to us. So, how do we apply this passage as, as men of God? So we want to become men of faith. We want to experience maximum faith. We want to be like Abraham and step into the blessings that God promises to us. I got seven application principles. Here's the first one. God's man puts his faith in God's promises. God's man puts his faith in God's promises. And you say, well, sure, JP. Yeah, I got that. I accept, I accept, I accept all the promises in this book. All right, give me 10 promises that you're trusting in right now that are changing your life, your marriage, your parenting, your finances, your victory over temptation. 10 promises from Scripture. Um, hmm, um, isn't there one somewhere that says, uh, see, you can't put your faith in what you don't know. You can't put your faith in what you don't know. You have to actually know the promises. Abraham had specific promises that God repeated. He internalized. He accepted. He acted upon. And then they were realized in his, in, in his life. You've got to know the promises of God if you're going to put your faith in them. You have to receive the promises of God. They have to be internalized. That's why it says in Psalm 119... Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. See, when you've got God's promises in your heart and you really know them and you can reflect upon them and you can speak them back to God and you can pray them back to God and you can claim them in the midst of the darkness, that's when they're, you're yours. And that's when they're going to be powerful in, in making a difference in your life. Um. It's like that scene in Gladiator where Maximus, at the beginning of the, of the movie, he's, he's, he's betrayed and he's in early in the morning and they, they, they tie him up and they take him out and, and the, the Roman soldier is going to kill him and Maximus is down on his knees and the, and the soldier is about to chop his head off, reaches to try to get the blade out and he can't get it out and then Maximus says, it's the frost, it makes the blade stick. And then he gets up and takes the sword from the guy and kills him and then he escapes. What you learn from that is that Maximus, he knew some things about the sword. When it's cold, it gets, it gets stuck in the scabbard. But more than just knowing some things about the sword, he actually knew how to use the sword. And what does scripture say? To, to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We need to know some things about the word of God, and then we actually need to know how to use it. We put our faith in the promises of God, men. So you got to know some promises. And, and let me just tell you this. Let me, just, let me do a little teaching here. There are four kinds of promises in the Bible. Four kinds of promises. There are universal promises. They're good anytime, anywhere, to anyone. 
That's a universal promise. So in Romans 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're going to be saved. That's a universal promise. I've seen that promise realized in Southern California, in Haiti, in South Africa, in, in France. I've seen it realized in Russia. I've seen it realized in England. I've seen it realized all over the world. You, you share the gospel and you say to someone, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. People claim that promise, put their faith in Jesus, and you know what? They're saved. It's a universal promise. Some of the promises in the Bible are universal promises. Some promises are contextual promises. Contextual promises. What do you, what do you mean by that, JP? I mean, when you look at the passage, the promise is given on a certain situation to a certain person because of a certain struggle. So Joshua chapter 1, God says to Joshua, as he's about to lead the people of Israel into the promised land, God says, wherever you set your foot, that territory is going to be yours, and I'm going to be with you, so be strong and courageous. So there's a promise that God gives to Joshua that anywhere he puts his foot, that territory is going to be his. That's the contextual promise. Now what can happen is God can take that contextual promise which was given to Joshua and say to you, I'm giving it to you too. But you need to understand it was given to Joshua in a particular time and setting and if you're going to claim it, you need to know that God is actually saying to you, I'm also giving you that promise. It's not the same thing as a universal promise. But it can be a promise you can claim if God says to you, I'm giving you that promise too. Here's a third kind of promise. It's a proverbial promise. Proverbial promise. What does that mean? Well, proverbial is Proverbs. There's a whole book of Proverbs, and then there are proverbial statements in the Bible. A proverbial statement is an observational statement about reality. Solomon, who wrote the book of Proverbs, basically was the wisest man who ever lived, and he looked at life and said, you know what, when I look at life, this is the way it works most of the time. And he wrote those down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as Proverbs, the way life just kind of works most of the time. Not all the time. See, Proverbs are not a statement of actual, factual, 100% of the time. They're a statement of the way life works most of the time. So in other words, sometimes there's exceptions. What are you talking about? Are you doubting scripture? No, I'm trying to interpret it correctly. A proverbial statement in the book of Proverbs. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. That works most of the time. Most of the time, if there's a child in a loving home with godly parents who pray for that child and love that child and help that child grow up and learn about Jesus, most of the time, that child's going to grow up and be a follower of Jesus. But not all the time. Because children have their own will. And sometimes they make bad decisions. And sometimes they choose to get in with the wrong crowd. And sometimes even children out of very loving Christ-centered homes grow up to not become followers of the Lord. Do you mean God didn't fulfill his promise? It's a proverbial promise. Are you, are you tracking with me right now? You understand what I'm saying? It's not a universal promise. It's a proverbial promise. But if God speaks to you about a proverbial promise and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you that proverbial promise. Like maybe Psalm 37.4, that's a proverbial promise where it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's a proverbial promise. But if God says to you, 
This is the promise. If you'll delight in me, I'm going to give you everything you want. He did that for Solomon, and maybe he'll do it for you. But if God speaks to you about that that proverbial promise, then you can claim it. See, there's different types of of promises. And, and, And promises are are given to us to transform our lives. Because it says in, in um, 2 Peter chapter 1, God has given us everything for life and godliness through his precious and magnificent promises that by them we may become partakers of the divine nature. You want to become like God? You want to really share in the life of God? You want to experience the fullness of God in your life? Well, God has given you his precious promises so that by them you can become a partaker of the divine nature. Abraham received a promise from God. He accepted that promise. He believed that God could do what he promised to do. He stepped out in faith and acted upon that promise and God delivered for him. And it's the same principle for us. Men of God Put their faith in God's promises. But you got to know the promises. Here's a second second application principle. God's man honestly looks at the physical reality of life. God's man honestly looks at the physical reality of life. Abraham said, God just gave me a promise that I'm going to have children. I'm looking at my body. I'm looking at Sarah's body. It ain't happening. But I'm going to trust God more than I'm going to trust what I see. So faith is not burying your head in the sand. Faith is not going to the doctor and the doctor saying, you've got cancer. And you saying, I don't have cancer. 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 Do I believe it yet? I don't have cancer. I don't have cancer. If I say it enough, I will believe it. And then I really have faith. No, that's not faith. That's stupidity. That's just stupidity. If the doctor says you have cancer, guess what you have? Cancer. But if God says, I'm going to heal you of that cancer, what God says is truer than what you see and what you feel. So, but you've got to honestly look at the reality of the situation. And by the way on this, if your wife says you guys have a problem, you have a problem. <laughs> so wherever your faith struggle is, honestly acknowledge it's a faith struggle. God's man does that. But then here's a third principle. God's man believes the truest thing is what God says is true. God's man believes the truest thing is what God says is true. See, Abraham acknowledged, okay, I'm old. My wife is old. The sexual part of our marriage is no longer part of our marital relationship. But God says... I'm going to have an offspring. So you know what Abraham had? He had a resurrection erection. He had a resurrection erection. I mean, guys, this is, this is what's amazing about this. This is in the Bible. This is in the Bible. God is saying, I'm giving you a promise that you're going to have children. And then at some point, they had a child. Before that point, they were beyond the age of enjoying the sexual part of their relationship. So 
It doesn't take a genius to realize what God did is God blessed them and enabled them to engage in sexual union, which God says is awesome between a husband and a wife. God empowered them to be able to do that so that God could give Abraham a son so that through that son, he could fulfill the promise that he gave to him. Wouldn't you like God to give you that promise? See, God's man believes that the truest thing is what God says is true. So this goes back to all these promises. Once you start internalizing promises from God, you realize that's truer than what I feel. That's truer than what I see. I'm going to put my faith in what God says, not just in what I can figure out. I'm going to put my faith in God's promise, and then I'm going to step out and act upon that promise. And when we step out and act upon the promise of what God gives to us, then God makes it a reality in our life. Because remember, faith is accepting that God is who he says he is, believing that he's going to do what he promises to do, then acting upon it, even when you don't see the manifestation of it. But if you act upon it, even when you don't see the manifestation of it, if it's a promise from God, God will bring about the manifestation of it. And that's when a miracle happens. And it was a miracle for Abraham to have Isaac. God's man believes that the truest thing is what God says is true. Here's a fourth application principle. God's man understands that God has the power to do anything and everything he promises to do. God has the power to do anything and everything he promises to do. God has the power to do anything and everything he promises to do. That's that's why our faith is in accepting that God is who he says he is. And God says, I have infinite power. God says, I'm sovereign. God says, I'm holy. God says that I just speak and it comes into existence. Things like resurrections are not any more difficult for God than just the sun rising. See, we, this is what we do. We, we project onto God our limitations. So if we think something's difficult for us, we think it's difficult for God. If we think, I can't figure this out, then I guess God can't figure this out. If we th- and, and then we do this. No, okay, I, I know that that's not actually true. God, God's bigger than me. But what we do is we put, we put uh, some type of... Uh, measurement on the miraculous power of God. So this would be easy for God. This would be a little more difficult for God. Well, this would be really hard for God. Do you realize how ridiculous that sounds when we talk about God? God's infinite. God's infinite. So whatever challenge you're facing, whatever struggle you're facing, whatever opposition you're facing... It's like that to God. And if there's a promise from God that he will do it, claim the promise. See, because faith has to have an object. It's God and his promises. But God's man understands that God has the power to do anything and everything he promises to do. And so the question is, how big is our God? See, that's what separated David from all the other soldiers in Israel's army. 1 Samuel 17, when David is sent up to the battle line and he sees 
the struggle between the Philistines and the Israelites and the biggest man he ever saw in his life, Goliath, steps down to the Valley of Elah and challenges the soldiers of Israel. All of the soldiers of Israel, including Saul, looked down and they saw how big Goliath was and then God looked real small. David stepped up, saw how big God was, and Goliath looked small. How big is your God? See, when you have a big view of God and you know the promises of God, when you have a big view of God and you know the promises of God and then you step out and act upon those promises, the power of God's released in your life. The miraculous power of God. That's when all things become possible. So you got to know how big God is and you got to know the promises and then you act upon them and then faith brings the reward of God's work in your life. The fifth observation, application principle is God's man acts upon everything God promises and commands. God's man acts upon everything God promises and commands. You see, faith is not a feeling. We think faith is a feeling. I feel really good. That song made me feel so good. Man, I felt so close to God at that men's retreat. Boy, that message really inspired me. It felt, I feel like I'm walking with Jesus. I love feelings. And on the, on the Myers-Briggs indicator, I'm like at the top of the chart with respect to feelings. And, and, and intuition. A lot of people don't think that about me. If they don't know me very well, they think I'm very analytical. I can be analytical, but I'm very feeling and intuitive in my, in my basic approach to life. But faith is not a feeling. Sometimes you have to faith it until you feel it. And faith is not intellectual assent. Faith is not just, oh, I accept the Bible, I accept God as a creator, I accept the Trinity, I accept salvation by grace, I accept that God wants me to live a holy life, I accept that God answers prayer, I accept that Jesus rose from the dead, sure, I accept that. And then I live just like anybody else, as if I'm in control and everything's up to me, and I have to figure everything out. I have a, 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 a disconnect between what I say I believe and then how I live my life. That's not faith. Remember, faith is getting in the wheelbarrow. It's acting upon what it is that you say you believe. God's man acts upon everything God commands and God's, God promises. Faith is action. Faith is, it, it, it's action. I remember when I, I asked my, my father-in-law for my, uh, my wife's hand in marriage. We dated five years. My father-in-law was a football coach at UCLA at the time. He's from... Uh, Appalachia, he speaks Appalachian American. Uh, and I walked, you know, we, I knew the family really well. We dated five years. I just thought this was going to be an easy conversation. He was going to say, welcome to the family. This is awesome. We've been waiting for this day. I just, I'm blessed to have you as, as a son-in-law. No. I walk into the home. They sat on, my mother and father-in-law, my girlfriend's parents at the time, they sat on one side of the couch. I'm on the other. The, it was, the atmosphere was so thick. I just started sweating. I just feel drops of sweat just dropping in my pits. And I start talking and I said, you know, I love your daughter. I would just be blessed if I could join your family and you give me permission to ask her to be my wife. It's, this is his first line. Well, kid, I know you love her. 
but it's action. It's action. And then for over an hour, he gave me a lecture on what marriage was going to be like and the sacrifice I needed to make and what action I needed to demonstrate if I said I really loved his, his, his daughter. But you know, I've been married 34 years. I want to tell you, love is action. Faith is action. It's not just how we feel. It's not just what we say. It's what we do. And God's man acts upon everything God promises and commands. Here's number six. God's man is declared righteous because his faith is completed with obedient action. See, when you put that faith into action, it's completed. That's what James is trying to say over in James chapter two. James is trying to say that it's it's the acting upon what it is that you say you accept and believe that really completes faith. That's why James 2, James says, if you see someone who's poor and, and doesn't have clean clothes and doesn't have anything to eat and they come to you and ask for help and you say to them, oh, be warm, be filled, be blessed, and then you walk away and don't do anything, James says, can that kind of faith save a person? And you know what the answer is? No. James doesn't say faith can't save a person. It's that kind of faith. See, that's part of our problem. We have that kind of faith in our idea about faith. We've divorced faith from action, and we talk about being saved by grace through faith, but the kind of faith many of us define as faith is not faith. Faith is always expressed in action. It's getting in the wheelbarrow. God made this promise to Abraham. He acted upon it, which in our passage was the supernatural ability to consummate his relationship with his wife, and then the result was a child. He acted upon what it was that God promised him. Number seven, wrap this up. God's man looks to Jesus as the author and perfecter of faith. God's man looks to Jesus as the author and perfecter of faith. That's what it says in Hebrews Chapter 12, after uh, this whole chapter on faith, Hebrews 11, all the Hall of Fame of faith. Abraham's in there a lot. Moses, all the people who live by faith in the, in the Old Testament. And, and they're commended because they live by faith. Continue with the same idea. Chapter 12 begins and says, therefore. So now, what's the therefore? Therefore, here's the application of all this teaching on faith. Therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Some of you are bottom line kind of people. I like bottom line kind of people. Say, okay, JP, if you could just bottom line this whole study. Here it is. Get as close to Jesus as you possibly can and stay close to Jesus. And you'll live by faith. Get as close to Jesus as you possibly can and stay close to Jesus and you'll live by faith. He's the ultimate object of our faith. All the promises of God are in Jesus Christ. We put our faith in Jesus and everything that he says and then we do it. And that's why Jesus said in John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father and I will manifest myself to him. We love Jesus, we obey Jesus' commands and Jesus makes himself known to us in a 
deeper way, we see more of who Jesus is. He works in our life, which causes us to love him more, which causes us to obey more of his commands, which causes him to reveal even more of who he is to us, which causes us to fall more in love with him, which causes us to be even more obedient to his commands, which causes him to reveal even more of who he is to us. Stay as close to Jesus Christ as you possibly can. He's the ultimate object of our faith. We continually look to Jesus. So, summarizing this study, write this down. Write this down. An out-of-the-box promise plus an out-of-the-box expectation plus an out-of-the-box faith action leads to an out-of-the-box miracle. An out-of-the-box promise. God gives you a promise from his word. An out-of-the-box promise. Plus, an out-of-the-box expectation. I expect God to be who he says he's going to be. I expect God to do what he says he's going to do. An out-of-the-box promise. Plus, an out-of-the-box expectation. Plus, an out-of-the-box faith action. I act upon that promise. I act upon that belief. Leads to an out-of-the-box miracle. Leads to an out-of-the-box miracle. Joshua chapter 3 and 4. God says, I'm going to lead you into the promised land. And I'm going to part the Jordan River. You're going to walk across. And you're going to be triumphant in the land that I lead you into. They all line up. And they start marching toward the Jordan. They get to the Jordan River. It's flood season. It's rushing. It's a deep river. It's a rushing river. And based on the promise of God, you know what they did? They stepped into it. And as soon as it says the sole of their sandals hit the water, the Jordan parted. And they walked across. They had a promise from God. They acted upon that promise. And they started acting even before they saw the realization of it. It wasn't like the the Jordan parted and then they walked across. No, They acted upon the promise even when they didn't see it. But because they acted upon the promise even when they didn't see it, guess what? That's when the promise was realized. And they walked into the miracle that God had for them. God has promises for you and for your marriage and for your children and for your finances and for your impact upon your neighborhood and for your service in the church and for your victory over sin. There are all these promises And when we put our faith in the promises of God, that's when God releases his power. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that every man listening here this morning, every man listening online, would be a man of faith. That we'd take your promises, we'd put our faith in your promises, and we'd act upon them. And we'd see you release your power in our lives. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.